Just a day prior to the Trudeau government invoking the Emergencies Act, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, told Cabinet that the convoy did not constitute a threat to national security. A document presented at Monday's Emergency Act hearings detailed the conversations that CSIS officials had with members of the federal cabinet throughout the protests. Dr. Dina Hinshaw has been fired as Alberta's chief medical health officer. The RCMP has arrested a Hydro-Quebec researcher for allegedly spying on Canada on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party government. And police are investigating after a radical climate activist in British Columbia threw maple syrup at an Emily Carr painting and glued themselves to a Vancouver Art Gallery wall. Hello Canada, it's Tuesday, November 15th, and this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Anthony Fury. And I'm Rachel Emanuel. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. On day 22 of the Emergency Act hearings, former Deputy Minister for Public Safety Rob Stewart confirmed that CSIS advised the federal cabinet that the Freedom Convoy did not pose a national security threat. Now, here's what that exchange with convoy lawyer Brendan Miller sounded like. There was no indication of foreign state interference occurring in the course of the protest. CSIS did not assess that any foreign state supported the protest through funding, that foreign states deployed covert or overt disinformation techniques, or that any foreign state actors attempted to enter into Canada to support the protest. And I take it that you were advised of that by CSIS and Director Vigneault, is that correct? That is correct. All right. And if we can go down to page number eight and the heading recommendation to cabinet, there Director Venu states that he learned that the EA reference, the threat definition set out in section two of the CSIS Act once the federal government began to seriously consider invoking the EA between February 10th and 13th. He requested that the service prepare a threat assessment on the risks associated with the invocation of the EA. He felt an obligation to clearly convey the service's position that there did not exist a threat to the security of Canada as defined by the service's legal mandate. The threat assessment prepared by the service was that the invocation of the emergencies legislation risked further inflaming IMV rhetoric and individuals holding accelerationist or anti-government views. You were told that, is that correct? That is correct. All right. Rachel, what I find interesting about this news is what is so new about it. We have yet another security official or government official saying, well, we didn't actually say the convoy was incredibly violent or national security threat. We didn't actually say we needed to bring in the Emergencies Act to deal with this. I mean, talk about rinse and repeat. I know it really feels like every other day we have some huge bombshell being dropped at this commission of someone in government or a department saying, we really didn't need these powers. It's certainly not looking very good for the prime minister at this point. It's interesting you bring up the prime minister though, Rachel, because next week we have Justin Trudeau testifying. We have deputy prime minister Christia Freeland as well. And we know that they were some of the individuals who said the most inflammatory things about the convoy and the statements that were most leading the public and media to believe that this was a, a cesspool of violence that really did need the EA uh, brought in. What do we think we're going to see next week? The question is, will the Prime Minister kind of acknowledge these weeks of testimony that have gone counter to his narrative, or is he going to pretend that they haven't even been uttered and, and just continue with the things he said back in February? 
I would be pretty surprised if we see a reversal from the prime minister and maybe even a bit of an acknowledgement that a mistake was made on his part. I mean, the thing that's really gotten me throughout all of this is we have to remember the prime minister actually refused to meet with any freedom protesters while they were in town, despite their request for a meeting. And then he labeled them with such inflammatory terms, as you mentioned. So I wouldn't be surprised if we sort of see him dig in when he has an opportunity to testify. All right, over to you for the latest on what's happening in Alberta. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith has made good on her promise to fire Dr. Dina Hinshaw as Alberta's chief medical health officer. The Alberta government announced on Monday afternoon that Dr. Mark Joff, the vice president and medical director for Cancer Care Alberta, will take her place. Smith has hinted at firing Hinshaw as she campaigned on overhauling Alberta health services during the UCP leadership race. And in her first press conference as premier on October 11th, Smith said she no longer wants to take advice from Hinshaw. Under Hinshaw's leadership, as you know, Alberta Health Services advised the county government to implement vaccine mandates and to close schools and churches. Alberta Health Services officers visited churches to ensure COVID protocols were being met, and those churches that did not comply were fined or even shut down. Some of those charges have been dropped since Smith became premier. Dr. Joff has worked with Alberta Health Services for more than 25 years. His interim appointment takes effect on November 14 and will continue until the Minister of Health rescinds the appointment. According to a government news release, he will continue in his current contract with Alberta Health Services with no additional compensation for the Chief Medical Officer of Health role. It's pretty interesting over here in Alberta, we seem to be moving in the opposite direction of Ontario, which is now teasing a mask mandate. I'm wondering what the impact is over in Ontario. What are people saying? Are residents feeling frustrated or do you think they're going to be willing to go along with this masking should it come into effect as we've been hearing that it's likely to? Well, Rachel, I mean, I think the tee-up is, is sort of the most interesting discussion point because this is a study in contrast. What's going on in Alberta, where Daniel Smith first running for the leadership, saying I'm pretty much running to make sure that uh, COVID restrictions cannot come back. And in Ontario, where we've had Doug Ford previously brag about being the most locked down jurisdiction in, in the free world and, and make fun of Florida and Ron DeSantos for them having a more uh, liberal and open approach there. So yet again, we're just seeing that incredible contrast and I think it's interesting to see Dana Hinshaw be fired only because, look, it's very rare in, in, in war, in the Vietnam War and World War II, you sub out your generals. They don't do the full tour, the full time of the conflict. The idea that we would have these people be in these positions pre-COVID, that they'd be in their jobs all throughout COVID and then stick around afterwards and, and get the same salary. I feel like that's just not appropriate given all of the incredible things that have happened in these roles. Sure. And I feel like we really need to see Hinshaw step away after all the public outrage when we saw the huge salary that she even given through the sunshine list earlier this year. Albertans were really upset about that. And, you know, as I already mentioned, Smith campaigned on this. I do think it's worth noting that Dr. Joff isn't considered a quack. People in mainstream media actually seem to laud his, his appointment. He played a key role during the province's pandemic response. So I saw some diehard Smith supporters who are really unhappy with the way that everything works over at Alberta Health Services, not terribly happy with the appointment. But by and large, I think this was the right move for Smith right now. She needs to start delivering on some of the things that she promised as she campaigned for the United Conservative Party leadership and the Alberta premiership. A Hydro-Quebec researcher has been arrested by the RCMP after allegedly spying on Canada on behalf of the People's Republic of China. 35-year-old Weisheng Wang is facing four charges that include fraud for obtaining trade secrets, breach of trust, and unauthorized use of a computer. 
The crimes are believed to have taken place between February 2018 and October 2022. Now, an RCMP release states, quote, while employed by Hydro-Quebec, Mr. Wang allegedly obtained trade secrets to benefit the People's Republic of China to the detriment of Canada's economic interests. Wang is accused of filing patents and publishing papers in China without seeking permission from his employer. He could face up to 10 years in prison. The RCMP received a tip about Wang's activities from Hydro-Quebec's in-house corporate security team. And this all comes as Canada's intelligence community has repeatedly warned both government and private entities to be on the lookout for foreign interference. Rachel, this is a really interesting story, if only because it just underscores so much of what we've been hearing about in recent years, security officials, other governments, experts, people at think tanks warning all of this. What does this say about Canada's relations with China? I think it's just another story to add to the really deteriorating relationships that Canada has with China. There was also that bombshell election report the other week from Global News that China's Communist Party might have interfered in the 2019 federal election. So certainly there's a lot of questions that need answering right now. And I'm hoping Justin Trudeau will raise some of these issues with his Chinese counterpart and get some answers for us. And one thing that's also very interesting, of course, is that Hydro-Quebec is considered critical infrastructure. The RCMP said that in a, in a release, and it is of strategic interest to be protected. That's their words there. So we see that this is not just about uh, stealing things from university laboratories, and a number of American professors have actually been jailed for doing just that, taking research and giving it uh, to the government in Beijing. This is getting involved in, in the things that we use to, to keep our society running, things like hydro facilities. If you thought climate activists couldn't get even more annoying, get a load of this story. Police are investigating after radical climate activists in British Columbia threw maple syrup at an Emily Carr painting and glued themselves to a Vancouver art gallery wall on Saturday. The painting that was targeted is titled Stumps and Sky, Carr was a painter who often incorporated First Nations subject matter and themes into her artwork. According to the group Stop Fracking Around, such incidents are an attempt to alert the public to the dangers of climate change. Protesters called on the government to shut down the Kitimat Coastal Gasling Pipeline. The government-approved pipeline has an agreement with all 20 elected Indigenous communities along its route. Indigenous BC Liberal MLA Alice Ross referred to the act as, quote, crime and vandalism. Other such incidents of environmental protesters vandalizing famous artwork have been reported around the world in recent weeks. In October, two climate protesters similarly threw a can of soup at a Van Gogh painting in display at the London National Gallery. I'm a little bit confused about this story. I'm wondering what the vandalism does. As we've mentioned, we've seen it with the paintings. There's also been some other stories about, you know, climate alarmists blocking up highways in London. I even saw a case where a man actually missed his father's funeral because of one of these blockades. I'm just a little confused about what this does for the environment. Do you have any thoughts, Anthony? I have no thoughts on what this does for the environment. It is totally bizarre, but I think it underscores the the religiosity of some of these protesters. I mean, let's remember, we're talking about really destroying, desecrating culture here, artwork, the Taliban used to do that when they would run into new districts. They would actually destroy uh, sacred symbols and artwork of other cultures. So we're getting into really kind of, I don't know, like disturbing terrain here. It's also interesting that it comes at a time when we're looking at an energy crisis. As you know, Europe is facing a very severe energy crisis this winter. It's something super serious. And just wondering why the radical activists are looking at this solution right now to sort of scream and cry about things when really we 
Europe should be looking at a way to secure more energy for itself. And I think that's fairly obvious to everyone who's looking at the situation with, you know, a sense of normalcy and rationality. Well, Rachel, I think, again, your point answers itself in terms of do they have any answers other than just this this crazy stuff that they're saying? And I think, no, they don't. I think they're not even interested in having those constructive answers. And I think it's kind of alarming that these alleged progressives would target a, a progressive hero. Emily Carr, not a member of the Group of Seven, but held up by people who uh, were big advocates for more attention to Indigenous issues, and also trying to profile a female painter at a time when women uh, were arguably not getting the equal respect they deserved as male painters. Why are they targeting her and her artwork? It's really quite something. That's it for today. And don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening and have a great day.